State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Sean Mayer, Director of Business Development Australia and New Zealand at Video Elephant about the state of making video profitable. Video Elephant aggregates premium video content from hundreds of content providers, including Bloomberg, Fox, Hearst, ITN, Endemol, Al Jazeera, Euronews, France 24. Let's begin. Hi, Sean. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much for having me on today. No, I appreciate you coming on. I know we met at Marbella and we had an initial chat and I'd love to just go into more into the conversation on video distribution and, and a lot of things you're speaking about to me then. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. It's actually a real privilege to to be on with you, as I said. And uh, I mean, I'm the sort of person who can sort of talk the leg off a chair, particularly when it comes to talking shop. So uh, hopefully I won't be going on too much uh, in certain directions, but I guess you'll be able to rein me in. So there's a lot of enthusiasm about video on my side. Of course, no. I, I definitely hear the, like the more enthusiasm, the more better. That's 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 what I say. So, um, Sean, um, just for for people who don't know much about Video Elephant about yourself, would be just great to start off with a bit of an introduction. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk first about Video Elephant, and then just give a bit of a background to myself, if that's okay. Of course. Um, so, yeah, Video Elephant, I think is it's it's really. Um, it's a fantastic business, but it's one that's not very well known in the Asia-Pacific region. And just to sort of give you an idea, it's a scale-up that's been around since around 2011, um, founded in Dublin, but then really rapidly moved straight in at a very sort of young age uh, to the US market, which was, I think, incredibly gutsy of, of the business to do that. You know, I think everybody who knows who's, who's tried to do a startup in the US it's a really saturated market and particularly difficult. Uh, Video Elephant have managed to do that um, ex- extremely well. I'm quite proud of the work that those guys have done uh, in the US. And uh, after another recent round of investment, I think the, the story that was, you know, okay, well, how do we expand and, and where can we expand into? And I think there was a lot of uh, excitement on, on all levels in the business of the idea of getting into the APAC area. So we've only been in market here for, for two months now. So I've been in the role for two months. I'm running the shop. Um, solo here at the moment and hopefully eventually we'll be building a team but what we bring is is a big you know we're we're a major aggregator now we've got around two million videos so we're bringing this huge raft of fresh content um, with brands that probably have never been seen in Australia before but are really high quality and suddenly you know for the first time ever these brands are coming into APAC and and really for me the challenge is how do I win over publishers to to trust this content to have an open mind about that content and, and to bring it in as part of a, a value add really to to their properties just to give you a background on myself I was I'm really I mean I describe myself once a journalist you're always a journalist but I started off you know many years ago about 25 years ago as a copy boy which is what we were called back in those days uh, for news limited and uh, worked for the Australian news desk and so very junior roles there and then really needed to move to the UK in order to to build up my uh, portfolio. So I eventually ended up becoming a digital editor for um, Associated Newspapers over there. But I think that really where I earned my stripes uh, in this industry was when I came back to Australia again and worked for 9MSN. Uh, so I was current affairs editor there and I was working with shows like, you know, 60 Minutes and Today and, and, and Current Affair on their digital properties. And these were in, you know, that sort of time when it was real rough and tumble stuff. You know, you'd be talking to somebody from broadcasting and they'd say, you know, we've been on the air for 20 years and we don't need a website. And you really had to kind of have a thick skin and, and, and really sort of win over those hearts and minds to to get those TV shows to cooperate with digital. Uh, and it was a really fantastic experience. I, I spent a, a number of years there. And then after that, it was I, I sort of got more into the video side of things um, completely, which was um, I ran uh, under a guy called Ricky Sutton, a product called uh, .tv or smh.tv or theage.tv that was under Fairfax. And it was really an IPTV VOD service. Um, Ricky went off to join uh, to create a company called Ubu that some people might have heard of. And then I sort of followed him in there and helped them launch on News Corp. So we, we sort of shared that experience together. Uh, and then Ubu was actually, I, I kind of came into Ubu proper uh, in my last role just before joining Video Elephant. And that was a fantastic job. I mean, you know, Ubu is a great company and I was really able to go out around the world and train editorial teams on, you know, what really works in video, uh, really opening their minds around uh, how to how to get video, a new video brands and new video voices to work for their audiences. 
Um, and it was just, uh, you know, I think, you know, a really central part of it and something that I hope to talk about a bit today is really giving these teams their mojo back with video. You know, I think it's quite easy for, for teams this many years into to using video online to get excited about it again and to really see fresh opportunities and reduce scepticism and get them out of the rut. Uh, so that was the job. I'd literally travel around the world and spend two weeks with a video team and win them over and, and really get them experimenting and using video in fresh ways. And uh, we had some really fantastic results. So that brings me up to Video Elephant. Video Elephant is, is probably even a tighter fit for me because of the fact that we're so obsessed with content and I'm very much a content person through and through. Very nice. Um, Sean, and just you made that transition from journalism to working in the MarTech space, I guess. Has specialising helped you better understand specific challenges and providing the solutions that you're providing through Video Elephant now? Or what do you, how do you find your transition helping you, where you to get you where you are today? It's, it's a really interesting question and, and it's one that i am sort of been recently sort of working with. Um, we, when I came into Video Elephant, you know, as a business developer role, it, it really sort of sits under a sales umbrella and I never really considered myself, myself a salesperson, yeah. uh, very much more an editorial person. But I'm sort of fortunate to come into a time of enlightenment and um, there's, everybody's familiar with the, with the challenger sale and that's something that Video Elephant really likes to look at as a, as, as a sort of a sales approach, you know, this idea of the challenger. Uh, salesperson, but it's gone a little bit of a step beyond that into what they call a sense maker. So, um, so it's it's somebody who can look at the vast amount of information out there and work with editorial and work with sales teams um, to sort of untangle it and find uh, solutions forward that really work and make sense for them. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different things you can do with that. But you know, experience is obviously something that is really really helpful to to make sense of you know new strategies and new approaches for these businesses. Yep. And in that, you know, my editorial grounding and my, you know, actually sitting and working, you know, you know, on, on, on one knee sitting at a desk with, with sales teams and sitting at a desk with editorial people, you know, that editorial experience has, has proved invaluable. Um, you know, it's more than just me pitching things to them or saying video is, is king and you need to, you know, be in the video space. You need to have more than that. You need to be able to really sit with them. Uh, and work on experiments and work on um, approaches that are going to be like a custom fit for their particular publisher. It's a fairly broad thing to say, but I really do believe that um, that companies need to start thinking a little bit in a safe zone of experimentation again, uh, and not just sort of sticking in the same old uh, approaches to video in particular that they've been doing for the last few years. And there's plenty to say about that. And I'm sure we'll get into that in more detail later. Definitely. But yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the, the new way of sales thinking is actually very conducive to the way, um, you know, editorial teams should be thinking anyway about just achieving good, good results for their audiences. I mean, I've increasingly seen as well, um, the bridge between sales and technical knowledge is actually getting someone who was in that role to, be, to move across that side. It's becoming, even in Google as well, like to educate SEOs or educate other people in industry, mm. to get people who are actually from that side to become more of a spokesperson and, and become a champion for that. So that, what you're saying definitely makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's an internal push, but I think that sometimes having an external person with, with solid editorial experience is, is yeah. a good way to sort of break the internal political impasse that you can get within organisations. And sometimes, you know, the organisations don't even realise there's an impasse there, but having a third party come in and say, listen, let's just open this up, let's make this work for you, not to be too prescriptive about a solution, just to sort of say, look, you know, video or, or what we bring is, is a toolbox uh, or it's an engine. Um, let's find out together where, where it's, it definitely works. We just have to find the best place to put that engine. Maybe it's in the middle of your craft. Maybe it's on the side. You know, it's actually just not not uh, being over didactic and, and, and finding a solution that works. And I mean, look, I, I can say with some confidence that it's worked almost every time. It just depends on how how much uh, internal barriers there is within an organisation um, to change. And, and I think that's the other part of it is actually being somebody who helps uh, in that change transition process. And again, being an external person with knowledge about how audiences and editorial works, that can really sort of help in that regard as well. Since we're on the topic, um, let's delve into that a bit further. So you mentioned some of the challenges in people leveraging video content. What have you found the roadblocks mostly to be? I know you said that it's important that everyone takes um, responsibility for it but what's some of the current challenges do you see do you see that it's maybe the time for creation or, or technical okay. skills what do you find yeah, I mean, I don't want to tie, you know, put everybody in the same brush, um, and I certainly don't mean this as criticism. But let's just sort of, you know, and, and you know, open it up quite a lot. I mean, let's first of all look 
it's different for every market for a start. It's what's, what course. happens in India is very different to, to what happens in Australia. Africa is a different story again. But if we just stay with the Australian um, example uh, at this stage, I mean, anybody can look at it at an Australian market at a glance. Is, it's a small pond with not a huge population and a few very big fish floating around in there. Um, there's also, and we're all seeing this, an increasing amount of cross-ownership with, with organisations. So, you know, now Fairfax and Nine and... So what does that mean? I mean, I think that it, it's, it, there's a challenge there for, for teams uh, when they're looking at content and when they're looking at the sort of KPIs they're facing is there's a pressure to prioritise broadcaster content. So, you know, there's always going to be a call of, of pushing the content. That their particular parent broadcaster is pushing and, and getting that into the system. That can kind of put blinkers on, on, on I think, the editorial strategy that goes around video. And I think there's a bit of scepticism about experimenting with new third-party content. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, a lot of the third-party content just wasn't a great fit or they didn't really know what to do with it or it was just sort of an, like a drip tray also ran. So if they really couldn't find anything, they would just sort of throw in third-party without really driving it and using it really very strategically. The other thing to say about that is that, um, you know, these, this broadcaster parent company content is very good at doing news, very good at local voices and usually very good at doing sport as well. So where does that extra sort of content think? I think, you know, video teams just sort of stick to that sort of content because that's what they're doing well and they don't think outside of that as much as they could. So I would say that really it's about, you know, I would go into it and, and when I talk to publishers in Australia, they sort of say around about, we have enough content. We've got plenty of content coming in. It's only when you start talking to them about their lifestyle offerings, uh, when you talk to them about stuff like beauty and fashion and, and consumer tech and all these things that are really saleable content, you know, for campaigns, they sort of start nodding and saying, yeah, actually, we can do with more of that. You know, it's, it's sort of an area that we haven't really been bothering with too much, but we do see an opportunity there. And so for my job is to break that down and, and to, to get them thinking that, no, we don't really have enough, or there's definitely room if we think strategically about this new content, if we use it right, then we actually get behind it and drive it. That's one part of it. Yeah. There's, a more, there's a deeper aspect to all of this as well, and particularly, and I find it in Australia, um, although it is a global issue, which is this sort of concept of, cognitive dissonance. So I find that with, with bigger broadcasters, when you're bringing in a new video solution and new video content, you tend to find to come up against something that you would call, you know, belief perseverance. And that's essentially where they've got a, a fixed idea in mind about how that their video works and what makes their video successful. Uh, and the more that you give them evidence to the contrary or you give them ideas that and support that with, with examples that might be the contrary, the more they want to dig in and say, you know, you know we, we tried that once or we did this, you know, uh, and, and they actually don't really want to hear about this, these, these new approaches. Now, they might have, let's just for an example say they, they came in and they had to deal with Reuters and that didn't work too well for whatever reason. Once you start digging in and asking them questions about why didn't, how often were you using it, where were you placing that, what verticals were you using that content on, it, it sort of start, the story sort of falls apart a little bit. And, and you don't really want to, um, you know, bring up um, conflict with them, but you do need to sort of unbox it a little bit and, and you realise that often with third-party content, they've just sort of given it, they dipped their toe in the water, they gave it a bit of a try, but they didn't really think of it as a, as a solid strategy. Um, and, and my job is to, to really talk about how they can bring it up to the next level and actually really benefit quite a lot from it. Because when you think this third-party content is highly valuable stuff, uh, that they're often getting pretty cheap. Um, you know, this isn't, there's not really a big barrier in terms of cost of bringing this content in. You know, it's, it's about delivering it via an MRSS feed and then usually some sort of uh, very basic, um, you know, model based on, on uh, how that content's performed. So if it doesn't perform, they don't really pay anything for it. If it performs really well, then they're pay paying a very low CPM on it to, to us and a higher one to themselves. Sure. So I think that there's that sort of cognitive dissonance, dissonance issue. And there's another type of it. It's not just belief perseverance. It's also status quo. I mean, you know, sometimes you'll get video teams and, and, and editorial teams who have got their, their owning P&L for video and, and they get stuck in status quo where the workflow is already, they think it's already too difficult, it's already too time-consuming to use video and they don't really want to bring in a new uh, element to, to the video workflow. So they're just thinking, look, you know, let's choose not to choose. Uh, and so it's also sort of getting them around that of, of just sort of saying, look, you know, there's ways of doing this that are really easy to work in with your workflow we can do some hand-holding with you. And, and I think, you know, that's where third-party aggregators can be successful. It's not just dumping video into their catalogue, but actually working with the teams 
on, on identifying what's working, working with them on, on a workflow that would be as useful and, and helpful as possible for, to them from the morning conference right through to the evening editor coming in. So that's something that we've had a lot of experience in doing and there's a lot of ideas on, on, on how to sort of do that that doesn't actually increase workflow. Definitely. We'll definitely go into more of the tactics and um, ways to do that a bit later. But just to break down a few more questions from what you said, because there's quite a few things you mentioned. Question, you said about entertainment content, how not a lot of the main broadcasters aren't doing that much con content around those areas. Have you spoken to more of the Gen Z or younger generation focused publishers that actually produce this type, a lot of this type of content? And, and what have you found your experience with them? Yeah, look, so so two months in, um, you know, we, we, we've reached out to a lot of people, um, but, you know, probably not not everyone. Yeah, there are some really great people making content, um, and as you call it, Gen C, it's a term I haven't used before, but I'll probably use it now, um, who, who are doing great content um, as well. For me, the, you know, in terms of the local market here, if we just stick to Australia and New Zealand, um, one thing that I'm really, um, really focused on is, is content acquisition and trying to get some more local voices uh, into the mix, um, but also sort of show that that content from outside Australia can be really beneficial, particularly if it's just text on screen um, or, or like trends, stuff that's, you know, trending beauty trends, fashion trends around the world. It doesn't, it can be agnostic and work very well. So um, yes, we're going to be talking to them more. I think, you know, for me, the initial outreach is really getting, um, is, is, is starting off with the long play. So really talking to those major broadcasters in, in Australia uh, and really work, sort of working out what's not working for them and what is working for them. Um, and because that's such a long play, I want to get started on it early. Um, in terms of the smaller guys um, who are up and coming, they're, they're going to be vital and, and not just vital for what I'm doing in, in Australia and New Zealand, but I think there's a real um, opportunity for those guys to get their content out um, around the region. So I'd really like to push some of that local Australian content into the, the African market, which is exploding right now. And, the, and I already know from experience that they love Australian content. Asia Pacific, I see a, a, a great experience there. So it's a bit of a, it's a complicated play. Whereas my job is really to get our content into publisher catalogs. The, the, you know, it's chicken or the egg a little bit with me. You know, I also need to make sure that the content mix is right and I, I need to be listing those, those voices. So to answer your question, yes, it's all happening on the horizon, but two months in, we're a bit early. Still early days. No, no, fair, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's right. Um, and how about in terms of, you know, you mentioned about the this, uh execs that have video as their uh, PNL as part of the PNL. Yep. I'm sure they, you know, you've got Stan and you've got those channel um, broadcasters that are also trying to push their own streaming services mm -hmm. as well. So how do you find competing against those offerings? It's actually not too bad. I mean, look, as I said, um, we've been in this game or I've been in this game um, for, for quite some time working with Ricky Sutton, with, who's now Uvu. Um, so back in the days of SMH.TV, look, there's a, I think there's a lot of, I consider myself an expert in the OTT and the, and the, the AVOD space um, now uh, after many years of, of working with it. So I think there's two things to consider. You know, when you're looking at Stan and Netflix and those guys, I mean, yes, I mean, this is a very sort of, it's a nicely polished, it's a very much an at-home big screen experience. Um, but I am finding that there's still a lot of interest from publishers to get into the OTT space. So a really great example of somebody who's just started doing it and is doing it very well is, is play stuff. So this is stuff.co.nz, but they've got this new sort of, um, you know, sit at home AVOD experience. It's a different type of content than what you'd find in Stan. Um, it is, there's a lot more sort of factual stuff in there. There's, um, there's some great sort of snacking content in there as well. Um, it's sort of like a hybrid between, say, Netflix and maybe even a YouTube experience of what they've got there. So what, what really I think the piece of missing um, that I've consistently found is missing with, with companies, and I'm not saying this is the case with Play Stuff because those guys are great, but what's missing is, is really, you know, this, that sort of business um, is strategically takes a very different type of thinking to short-form video strategy and video and article strategy. You're really looking at different sort of metrics. You know, you have to look at the amount of time people are spending and the engagement within those videos. So, so that should become, as opposed to streams, it should become how much time and how many minutes people are spending viewing. Um, and it's down to things like, you know, what, what are they doing um, with types of content at certain types of day? So where they're really trying to capture people is on the commute home or the commute on their way to work. So are they promoting the right sort of content in their catalogue 
for those particular weekdays, weeknights, and that could be stuff like food does very well, for example, in evenings. Um, true crime stuff does very well in, in evenings on weekdays. And then on weekends, you know, they really should be prioritising stuff like uh, feature sport documentaries, you know, maybe something, you know, about a, a kickboxing, you know, the, the, like uh, the DNA of GSP, I remember, is one that did really well. It's about Georges Saint-Pierre. Um, this, is, this is a video that just went over and over, just did really, really well. And what we were noticing is that kind of sportsman story uh, Sportswoman story does extremely well on weekends. Travel content, feature travel content does very well on weekends. And they often haven't really thought about that kind of stuff. So, so it's about targeting uh, the audience at the right time of day and really experimenting with, with audience as well. So, you know, they, they need to be coming into this OTT space with a very open mind and a really good idea about uh, trying different types of curation and different strategies. The other thing that, that, that I've noticed with with and I'm not going to name these people, but there's, uh, let's just say they're, they're a catch-up, major broadcaster, a catch-up TV service. Um, and like many of those catch-up TV services, they've been looking for content that is more, um, you know, permanent. They can just sort of sit and, and build out their catalogue with, with content that's there sort of ongoing. And when talking to those guys, you know, what I often found is they had a very clear idea of what they wanted from us. You know, they were saying, you know, we just want female skew. We want, you know, these verticals, these sorts of topics. And you'd have to say to them, have you considered just, can we just experiment a little bit with a bit of true crime? I know it's not female skew, but let's just try a little bit of true crime. There's a bit of military stuff. You'd be surprised how well that goes. And you can see the look on their face thinking that is so not our brand, but they'll try it. You know, they'll sort of trust us enough to try it. And you'll you come back the next month and look at what's done best. And it's usually one of those two that's been like the number one series for that week. And they're like, oh, geez, okay, do you have more of that? So you need to sort of challenge a little bit on 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 what they think their their audience is into, and and what you know is actually could really sort of broaden out their audience base beyond it. That's tricky because you know you don't want them to lose their voice. You want them to be able to maintain their voice, but you also want them to break ground and, and continue to grow new audiences. So so yeah, I mean I, I think that it's there's some of these companies starting off in it now are coming in with in, in really good faith, but they they really need to think in, in a difference with a different strategic approach when it comes to to OTT long form content. And usually we've been right with with the sort of uh, information we've given them. So I'm I'm always happy just to to talk to people about this. So if anybody is out there who's starting a new new um, OTT service themselves and just wants to have a free chat, um, I just love talking about it. So so I'm ready to go anytime. Of course, Sean. And let's. Um, at the, at the, uh, apply some of those insights to short form video a bit later, but I just wanted to take a step back because when we spoke about what we're going to discuss, you mentioned making video profitable, why Graz's editorial vision is critical, and you wanted to make this as a centerpiece mm. uh, as of the conversation and what the set of play is for APAC publishers. Why? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think it's because it, it's it's sort of coming in. Okay, let me just give a, a, a very quick background. Um, you know, when I came back and I worked with Nine MSN, this was back in the days, this was around 2007 to, through to 2011, in the days when, you know, video strategies were only really just sort of starting to kick off in Australia. And that was inserting videos and new articles and all this stuff. It, it seems really recent, but it was actually a world away back then. Um, and I remember that it was really, it was something that everybody in editorial was KPI'd on. And there was so much sort of mojo and, and excitement and buzz around getting video to work well in, in articles. Every journalist was given a push, you know, think video first. Just, you know, think about there's always going to be a video to match. It might not be directly relevant, but it can be a really good explainer or backgrounder. You know, don't just give us text on page. Give us as much value within an article. Okay. The reason for that is obviously video can drive revenue if it's done well. Uh, the other aspect of it is just the fact that a lot of people are accessing content directly from either social or, or directly from um, search. Uh, and therefore, an article page needs to be a destination in itself. So make it as engaging and give it as much value as possible. So there's a lot of excitement and it really sort of felt we're, we're on the cusp of this whole video thing back in those days. Since then, I've really seen that sort of wane and, and sort of almost disappear. And, and I talk to, um, and I'm not talking about everybody, the people listening out there will know that their video teams might be different to what I'm about to describe. But I, I know that there are quite a few video teams that I've come across, or quite a few editorial teams that I've come across, where the editors just don't really think about video. And what they've got instead is just a, an internal sort of downtrodden video team that's kind of overworked, you know, it's, it's a, they've got a sort of a clunky workflow around it. And 
they're not thinking that grassroots approach anymore. So grassroots, I mean, every member of editorial is KPI'd, is driving video performance, just as, as making their content and their every article they write as, as value-added as possible. So I've seen that change. I've seen a lot of, I've uh, walked into a lot of newsrooms where journalists just sort of glaze over when you start mentioning video. They really think it's not their bag. You know, it's not nothing to really, you know, do with them. And then you've got a video team that's just focused completely on the broadcast, the parent broadcaster's content. They're a little bit overpressured. So what, what my job has been to do, and I think, you know, where I really want to give examples about it is these businesses overseas, these markets overseas that are a little bit newer to video that are seeing it with fresh eyes again. And, and so a really good example of that, I would say, would be, and, and a real success story we saw was, was a company called Media24 in Africa. Right. So Media24, massive company over in, in, in Africa. They cater to the whole continent, but, you know, obviously they're based in, in mostly in Cape Town and Joburg. We went over with them and video was so new over there because data plans were terrible in Africa. Around the time that I started working with those guys, though, um, data plans had opened up and all of a sudden video became something that, that audiences could look at without worrying about data allowances. Now, going to those teams, you know, what we did is we, we established, you know, who, who could be the champions. And I had a quiet aside with, you know, the leaders, the editorial leaders and said, who are the sorts of people who are, who are going to embrace something new and just sort of run with it? We identified those people and we just quickly got a lot of buzz on the news floor um, about, you know, these brand new content brands that were coming in, how cool Cheddar could be, you know, within their content, you know, how we could use that in lifestyle, you know, all of these kind of new things that they hadn't necessarily heard of um, and, and, you know, how we could make it work for their audiences. And those guys had that 9MSN 2007 approach because video is so new. And a year later, they still have that buzz on. You know, they're still, you know, they're still breaking records every week, you know, on, in terms of not only revenue, but, um, you know, the number of streams they're achieving, you know, and there's just, uh, they've really, you know, used champions. They've, they've really used the idea of experimenting and saying, you know, I know we do things a certain way, but let's just try something different. There's not much risk in it. You know, let's try, you know, let's, let's try some different stuff on afternoons when, you know, people are going to want to watch more video. Let's try things on weekends. And they've just sort of done a fantastic job with it in that way. The level of enthusiasm is brilliant. And every time we've been trying to do that with, with teams both in Australia and maybe in India and, and, and uh, Southeast Asian countries is to bring that mojo back into their teams um, and, and sort of, you know, once we've sort of seen it work, it is possible to do it. It's just you have to make sure of two things. One, that you identify those champions. And so you get that um, halo effect and that grassroots following from other journalists within their vertical and within their team. So I, I think that, you know, that's, that's one key part. And the other key part of it is, is making sure that the, the leaders themselves are driving it. And you'd be surprised how, how many editorial leaders or just editors just look at it and go, I don't know if my team's going to go for that. I think my journos aren't really going to do that. It's like you just need to tell them to do it and you need to get them excited about doing it and you just need to sort of get them on board with it. But there's a lot, you know, there's nothing that's going to turn um, a grassroots approach off quicker than an editor that's wishy-washy about it. If you're going to bring on this new content, if you, you know, talk about it, get excited about it, and then just drive it and KPI it. And, and they need to be KPIing things like, you know, article fill rates within, video article fill rates within, within articles. So making sure that there's video in, in at least 40% of your articles that day. And that should be very achievable with both your internal content and third-party content. Is that 40% is the base minimum. Most, most, businesses if they look at it they're doing about 10 percent to 15 percent right. articles with videos there's no excuse for that um there's so much great video out there to use it should be at least 40 and i would say the best practice is to get it beyond 60 so you know i just think that it, it's it's i think the biggest challenge is like i said i keep using the word mojo but really getting that buzz back around video it is there you just have to look at it with fresh eyes and the easiest way to look at it with fresh eyes is to bring in a whole bunch of new brands and say right what can we do with this you know, how can we how can we test this with audiences? How can we see what works? Um, and then you know each day telling you know journalists. I mean, I remember uh, the Media Twenty Four example. I had a wonderful deputy editor called Adele Hamilton. Every day she would send um, an email around the morning saying congratulations to Harriman's team in in you know in entertainment. You know, you guys did went gangbusters with these videos. Let's do more of this. And it didn't take her very long. I mean, it was something that she could whip up in about. 
10, 15 minutes at the beginning of the day, but it yeah. kept the team engaged and it's kept the team engaged even, you know, more than a year later. As I said, they're still breaking records with it. So I would really like to see that kind of excitement, enthusiasm back in video teams and, and not just about revenue and, and, and video itself, but about the impact that it means for audiences. I mean, if you're growing video, it, obviously your, your audience is loving it. So, you know, why not give them more? Why not get more savvy at it? Why not try new things? So I, Sean, I guess that's where I'm coming from with it. Yeah. Um, Sean, you don't, you generally don't believe that there's no tech play that's making it easier now to create videos faster, or do you generally just believe it's purely the mojo and the value that people underestimate from video? That's... I think, the, I think the te- particularly coming from a, a, a company like Uber, which I think has got some fantastic products, uh, publishing and workflow solutions that sort of go hand in hand with their content. Um, and I think that's that's certainly part of it. Um, but one thing that, and, and just to give them an, as an example of the difference between the tech play on it and the sort of the, the, the manual mojo, that sort of part of it, is that one thing that we had from every journalist that was using it is that's great that artificial intelligence could recommend something, but as a journalist, I'm naturally curious. I don't want just a recommendation that pops up. I just want to know what else is out there. The AI might have made the best best suggestion to me, but I still want to know what else is out there. So all of those tools that we were doing were also about, you know, yes, and a quick AI implementation that could be sort of auto, could could do auto placement. But really what journos want is, is, is that's great to narrow it down for me, but what else is out there? And the other thing is that works really, really well is, and is really old fashioned. And I'm still a believer in old fashioned stuff is I would get in every morning and I'd still do this now is, is to, I would go through those feeds. We'll get two and a half thousand videos through. I'll already know I'm a news junkie and a content junkie anyway. So I'll already know what the big stories are that day. And I'd just love to get an old, old fashioned manual list out saying, Hey guys, you know, this is broken overnight. We've got some fantastic vision from these, 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 and these. And the idea of me doing that in a very manual sense is just to give journos and editors some legs to put under their their morning news conference. So I really like video and I really think video, this is again that grassroots thing, video should really be helping to drive the news agenda that day. It's not just something that is a backup, but you'll get, um, and this is where third-party content does really well, you'll find some really interesting stories coming through from, from outside providers that are uh, market agnostic. They're not too American, they're not too European, they're not too Australian, they're just agnostic. They're things that are happening around the world. And journalists can write stories around these and these videos will go gangbusters. I mean, I'm just looking, I can just look at the catalogue now and there's just a bunch of just really interesting stuff that's that's come through. So, you know, the top 10 millennial food trends, science has found cheese can be as addictive as cocaine. I mean, these are all light stories, but they go get, audiences love them. They're from trustworthy sources sources, um, and they're really great for afternoons and then that sort of, so I really encourage them to, to, to think about original content to write around video, even if it's four or five bars, and then work their way back and see how they can use that third party maybe in the morning news agenda when traditionally they would have just taken a news bike from their parent broadcaster. So there's a lot to talk about, obviously. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Um, So I'm not sure if you're across this, but uh, Google News, for example, they've recently tweaked their algorithm a bit to better favor original news reporting. Yeah. I'm sure that, um, you know, people are going to be increasingly looking to create more original stories and video. Yeah. So what, what do you say, argue against the fact that video aggression might be against that trend of more original reporting? And well, I mean, I still see this as, as, as original content. I mean, when, when they're talking about that, you know, there's two, there's two sides to it. I mean, if there's, there's a story idea that can come through from, from video and then a journalist takes a local touch on it. So you've got something that is agnostic that's happening in the world and you give it a local flavour. There's one thing that will never change around the Google algorithm is that, you know, is, is the, or, it's a bit cocky for me to say that, but it's, it's a bit of a truism is that what it's really looking for is the amount of value in a page. So it's not just all the keywords, but it's, is this content... Uh, how relevant is the text that's used in that content to uh, to the video that's used in that and where is the video used and are those two things really relevant to each other? So really all of those things that you're adding to to an article is is about adding value to, to that particular page as a destination. Definitely. So that's always going to be one of the major uh, factors in, in helping boost S- SEO. 
and I really do think there's an opportunity, you know, with people like Inch or people with uh, Now This or with Cheddar who do this, do this really interesting content, is to take that idea and say, okay, what can we do with this? You know, how can we localise this? Um, and these are often story ideas that they would never have come up with you know, on their own. There's no surer way to, to lack originality for your brand than just to take your, your parent broadcaster's content that every other broadcaster in Australia would have been covering. They're all sort of leading with a, a similar story anyway. You know, that is really something that's going to be replicated and there's going to be a lot of saturation um, on those particular uh, story ideas. This is about how do we break that up? So I would actually, I would actually argue the opposite. I, I think that there's there's an opportunity for publishers to stand out from the crowd by mixing more colour in from other brands and stories that otherwise you wouldn't have really seen in Australia, and just localising them. Fair point. So let's along moving towards the start of the conversations. Um, it's around the tactics and blueprints. So I know we've spoken about bringing the mojo into back into the companies and you started talking about for, from an OTT perspective around understanding what works and doesn't work. So are you able to share some examples on, I know you, we spoke about Media24 as well a bit, but can we speak more specifically about how publishers can understand what works for them, what doesn't work for, work for them and from a video perspective and some examples. Okay, look, I can't stress this enough, and I think this can make people's, you know, the hair stand up on people's necks and um, just hearing me talk about it. But if there's one word that I would uh, I would take away or I'd want to, I want people to take away, it is the word experiment. Now, that seems risky, but it, it, the idea is to create something that's the opposite of that. So, uh, okay, the first, the first most base point is getting article fill rates up with videos so getting more videos into more articles and like I said I just don't think there's any excuse not to be doing that yes you might have a lot of internal content but how do you diversify that catalog using third-party content providers um, to get into sort of every article so that's very important you're also needing to, need to think about where you put videos on the page so you'll tend to find that some publishers will be a little bit cautious and they won't want it they'll put video at the 14th par down the page and wonder why it doesn't work. Really, in an ideal world, you'd have video at the top, or you'd have another explainer background or video in the middle and, and something relevant to uh, at the bottom to engage those sorts of super engaged readers. You know, if they're engaged enough to read the entire article, then they'll obviously want to see more content. So give them more video down the bottom. I would say that really with that, so there's, there's a whole bunch to say around that, you know, in terms of what that means to video performance. You know, if you put videos down the middle, you're going to get about a 10% click to play. If you put up the top, you're going to get something from 30 to 70% click to play rate. So, so do experiment with those different spaces uh, in a way that you um, you think would, would benefit your audience and try in non-peak times. Just just give that a go with non-peak times and write original content around video as well um, because then you're going to have a video that's highly relevant to the piece of content. It's just a better audience, audience experience. Um, but I think that probably the main thing, um, one of the main um, areas is to get every journalist, you know, and, and they might need somebody external to talk to them about or they might have a great internal team, but is to get journalists to think laterally about video. So one thing there's a lot of interest in at the moment is this explainer content. So a volcano happens, it goes off in Bali. Um, you've got a nice news package that's that's been done up and you put that at the top because it's highly relevant and then they'll just leave that. What, what really can do really well and, and, and to sort of increase video performance is to have a nice explainer on how volcanoes work or, or something that sort of work, work, you know, all, you know, the last sort of biggest volcanoes in the last 10 years or something that they can put in a middle, middle par. But they need to think laterally about it. And, and an example of it, a local example I'd give of people who do that very well is uh, news.com.au. People yeah. might love them or hate them. I don't really care. Um, but when I look at their video strategy, I think they do it very well. So, for example, they've had so they've had a story on their front page today about you know the, the truth about how disgusting tea can be, and instead of just looking for something that was a hundred percent relevant, they've actually just they they think very laterally, and they'll just do let's just do a video on how to make the perfect cup of tea. Now that might not sound like a perfect match, and some editors might turn their nose up on that, but audiences like that. But audiences will go for that. So, um, you know, just think a little bit more laterally about the way you use content. It's a lot easier to do when you've got brands outside and it's a lot cheaper to do it as well. Um, the other thing I would say is 
I'm very much into supporting video teams by not overusing them. So the idea of third-party content is that it's a quick and cheap way to get good, trusted video content, making money for you that you can then feed back into the video team to do what they do best, which is maybe local content. So stop getting your video team to do, you know, a video on the royal baby birth or whatever because everybody's doing that. That content should be coming to you via feed it's going to be better quality content because you've got people on the ground there. So don't get your team to sit in a room and spend 300 bucks making a video about the Royal baby when you can get that content in and they can be focusing then on, on making revenue out of content that really is original, that really is standalone stuff. There's, there's a load of, 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 of different stuff. I mean, like I said, the other best practices is identifying champions and KPI, KPI teams on those bill rates by every vertical. So um, what I tend to find is that you will get champions in a team and that's vital, but you'll also get a lot of members of your editorial team who try to just fly under the radar a little bit. So they'll never really do video. Um, and, and I don't want to get aggressive with those people, but you need to be able to identify them and sit down with them and say, why aren't you using video? You know, let's work this through, you know, and, and actually getting every sort of every vertical humming and every journalist sort of at least using it somewhat. So, I mean, look, there's, there's, a, there's dozens of, of best practices that, that they, can be, they can be using. But I think the final one, um, which I think is really, really important and I don't see enough of, is being consistent. So uh, editorial teams will come in. They'll say, yes, let's try this new thing. They'll try it in one spot for a day that doesn't get many streams and they'll just sort of abandon it. And, they, you know, there's just they don't really get behind it. So the, the editorial teams that work really, really well um, in, in finding new audiences with video and new brands from video are the ones that will put it in there every day at a certain time of day and they'll slowly build that traction up and their audiences will get used to having uh, a certain style of video in and they stick to it. You know, they believe in it. You know, they, they, they wouldn't put that video in their articles if they didn't think it added value and they'll just stick to it. Um, and over time, they'll see a snowballing effect. The ones that don't succeed are the ones who give it a bit of a try. They dabble in it and then they say, oh, it doesn't really work for us. It didn't do that well. And it's like, you really didn't try hard enough. You know, I, I think that consistency is something that, is really, really necessary in bringing new video brands and new audience experiences into your fold. And you'll be rewarded. You really will. I mean, you, you, if this is how new audiences are really built. They're not built overnight. You know, they're not built just because you put a, a new style of video in to a spot, you know, for one lunchtime. You know, this is something that you need to be consistent. You stand behind that content, eventually your audience will stand behind it too. No, definitely. And... Um... I know you spoke about the explainer videos, but I think a lot of that came from the time when, you know, social was a, a big play with for video and how publishers were also trying to become video-only publishers as well. Do you think social is um, still a good way to experiment? And are, are you finding any, any, any um, differences in video strategies on when you are publishing video across different platforms? Well, look, the first thing I would say is that, that none of the aggregators that, that I've worked with um, have, have given clearance to use video on social. So it's not something that I... So what I get is a little bit more anecdotal coming from teams that are using it. Yeah. Um, video is... Uh, sorry, social is something that obviously there's a lot of fire at, 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 um, at you know, at a lot of these uh, social people. I think businesses and, and publishers that have relied too much on social have really been shot in the foot. Um, recently, I think that social media companies like Facebook have gone through um, an ice storm. And what I mean by an ice storm is it was almost like a catastrophe around them and, and a level of scrutiny that almost had to happen. I am not anti-Facebook myself. I know that the, particularly the Australian team are particularly talented people who do love content. Some of them are, are former bosses of mine and I know just how sincere they are with, with, with liking journalism. However, I think that the jury's still out on whether or not um, the strategies that they're now bringing in to support journalism are really going to work. Are they going to be meaningful? And I know there's a lot of talk about that. Mumbrella, there was a lot of talk about that more recently that's been talked about. You know, are these these support mechanisms that the companies like Facebook and Google are bringing in, are they going to be meaningful in the long term? Look, that remains to be seen. But I think that really the real impact and the real challenge um, for for publishers and, and for sales teams that work internally with these publishers is to reach scale. So it's very hard for them to attract campaigns around when you've got the reach of these big tech companies out there. And so really what it's about is, is how do we create 
a, a level of value for um, for, for advertisers, um, yep. to the publishers, to overcome that that problem with scale. So um, for me, that's about you know quality content. It has to be trusted content. I mean, trust has been the buzzword, and for good reason lately. Um, so it's about finding. Um, I guess as, as increasing your editorial voice um, as much as possible by using trusted brands and that's trusted content suppliers from third party or, or wherever else that you you can do partnerships with other video uh, other video or just content creators uh, and and I think that in Australia that's going to be that's going to be a really a, a really big thing for all of us but um, you know like I said I think it's going to come down to the value add the relative value that we can offer publishers in Australia that 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 is something that can't necessarily be done by a social. And um, um, I think the key message you were mentioning as well is around fulfilling the amount of video because it's still very much undersupplied. But um, how do you see native advertising play into um, video dis- distribution and what you guys are doing? Are you, do you have my synergies around with, with native advertising or...? Yeah, look, I think that it's, um, look, I mean, let's look at the situation. I think there's too much. There's a problem with monetizing video in that um, there has become, I guess, it more and more reliance on, on programmatic. So programmatic was huge, then it sort of waned back a little bit, and then it's sort of, it's, it, I think there's a, a, almost like a 50-50 minimum reliance on programmatic and internal sales yep. uh, campaigns. And obviously, you know, the problem with that, obviously, as we've seen re- recently, and, you know, I, I remember a time when, uh, you could get on programmatic around you know ten to fifteen dollars. Now that's really roughly around eight dollars CPMs, and and that's not you know that's not great. So this is another thing that I would think is again it's, it's chicken or the egg. Every sales team will say to you, well you know we would do better with internal campaigns if we had the right sort of content um, to to anchor campaigns around, and if we had a proper growth story. So again, so so this comes down to okay, if you're doing the same thing over, if you're just relying on your you know, parent broadcaster's content. Are you getting a growth story there or do you need to start experimenting with new areas to continue growing that audience? So that's the first part of it. The, the second part of it is your content mix right for, for the sorts of campaigns. And like I said, a lot of publishers think they've got too much content when in reality they don't really have a lot of great a lot of great lifestyle content. They don't really, you know, they've got some good lifestyle content, but do they have enough to generate enough streams to get a meaningful um, campaign? successfully against it that remains to be seen in my opinion and it's very subjective is there's never enough lifestyle content um so getting that mix right getting audiences used to it and getting that growth story around it is i think really going to be a big part of of rebuilding that internal sales team success and really getting uh internal um, campaigns running again um so right now it's sort of generic you know there's a there's a focus on news and sport which is you know can be sort of lower cpm stuff but high uh in terms of streams but is yeah. it really fallible content is it really this this sort of strategy that they need to be looking for a long-term growth that's that's, that's fair enough so let's look ahead mm-hmm. so what what do you think's ahead i know you you're you said that you're a fan of um, more lifestyle content but what, what do you see ahead in terms of how the space is going to look out, how the space is going to play out and what's some of Video Elephant's plans as well for 2020? Oh, that's a great question, actually. We'll get to the Video Elephant plans later because I'm still sort of formulating that. Sure. Uh, and and I've, got, uh, I've got a bit of a board presentation soon in New York, which I'm a bit, a bit nervy about. Um, it should be exciting, though. Yeah, look, look. I said, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, like I said, I think that the future very much in terms of saleable content is still going to be around lifestyle trends. I think the future is going to be very much in that type of content. I do think explainers have, have a place in it, not just in Australia, um, where Australia is really, it's a market that's plateaued. So, you know, Australia is, is a mature market. Um, it's it's sophisticated market. There's quite a lot of money considering the size of uh, the the audiences here. Um, so now it's about breaking new ground and taking and experimenting. And that's why these new content aggregators are really here to help with that process. So so it's about taking that on. And that's not just Australia. Um, this is something we're going to see right across APAC. Um, so that is the sort of the first uh, part of it. I think there's also going to need to be um, a greater interest in a, in a, in a reduction in scepticism around non-local voices. I think that um, editorial teams are going to need to think about targeted demographics having more of an international voice than just an Aussie take on everything. Um, that's not the most attractive thing to editorial teams straight away, but I think as time goes on, we're going to see a sort of a globalisation of, of voices. I think there's no more, um, there's no way that that's going to be more sort of obvious in the, you know, like 
we're talking about with social. You know, there's a lot of content coming in now that's really high quality, beautifully produced, but it's just, it's either non-voiceover or it's text on screen um, and, and just sort of opening up, um, you know, to, to allow that kind of content to become part of your central offering as well. I think those are kind of the main thing. I mean, in terms of what we're going to be doing about video, look, I mean, we wouldn't be doing this. We didn't think it was still a really great growth area. We just think we we need to break down some of those barriers and we need to work as aggregators, um, as content experts and and audience experts with hand in hand with with companies. So that's the way I see that going. Um, In terms of what the plans here, um, look, I've got a lot of opinions about APAC and a lot of, as you probably know, I could talk at length about everything, but we're really going to focus right now on, on Australia and New Zealand. We really want to get it right here because we think that it's a great uh, market here. It's one we know a lot about. Uh, and we see this as the foundation. You know, this is the anchor for us in the region. I would like to see Video Elephant very quickly move into the African market. As I said before, I said it's a market that's expanding. There's a lot of energy around it. The CPMs can be quite good uh, in Africa. So I think that that's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, in India, too, to some extent. Now, I'm a little bit reticent about India because um, for a very simple reason, it's a fantastic market. There's a lot of eyeballs there. But there's two things. One is that CPMs and sales teams can be a little bit green when it comes to selling video. Um, yep. So, And you've got lower CPMs in, in those markets. So it's overcoming that. I think there's a bit of a, a growth story. I would really like Video Elephant to support those teams and work with them to, to sort of mature their sales strategies around video. So that's something I'm hoping to do. The other thing about... Uh, India is that it's unforgiving. If you come in with half a product in India, they'll never forgive you. You need to come into India with with something that works straight out of the box, has the right flavor, um, touches enough Indian languages, not just English. You know, so there's a bunch of considerations. You should never go into to the Indian market half baked, and you have to get it right. Whereas with Africa, you can experiment with them, you can try things out, you can you can grow with them. In India, it's slightly different. Um, so that's really what I do. And then in terms of companies that we want to hit, I would really like to get us into South Korea. That's booming, very interesting stuff. I want their content too. So I think South Korea is creating some really interesting content. I'd like to bring that back to Australia and, and bring that around the world. And I'd like to get our content into their publications. And then Malaysia and, and Singapore, obviously. Um, where I'm going to think more of a long play is going to be China. I think China's a complicated market. There's a lot of unknowns. I have lived in China for around eight months. So it's a market that I respect very much but i think it's going to be a, a real challenge and again much like india i don't want to go in half baked i want to go in with my eyes open so there's, there's quite a lot on um and then obviously there's a fantastic team already with video elephant in the u.s so they're continuing to grow there and um i think that really is going to be the center of our story for for the next few years and you know there's going to be this exciting story from apac coming up in the around the flanks and they've got a very enthusiastic and driven person to lead them. So with that, Sean, I really thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I hope to um, speak to you um, again soon. We'll definitely speak soon. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, mate. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.